He's involved in a number of businesses. He's a great role model. Telling it like it is. Giving you both sides of the story. This is Cats at Night. Great American, a great New Yorker. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. This is Cats at Night. John Katsimatidis here. And and we have a great show for you today. we got a lot of some breaking news we're going to hit in a few seconds. And this is a TriCast, AM 970 The Answer. WABC Radio 770 and WLIR. In the studio, we have no Republicans. We have two common-sense Democrats. We have uh, Judge Richard Weinberg and Governor uh, David Patterson and my sidekick here, Lydia Serrani. Tell people about the show, and let's. Uh, and I think we got the breaking news coming any second. Absolutely. So we are going to speak with uh, Gordon Chang, who's going to tell us all the latest on what's going on with China. Of course, Larry Kudlow, as we do every Friday. The NYPD Commissioner, Keyshawn Sewell, she is a very uh, amazing speaker, so I'm very honored to actually speak to her very shortly. And, of course, we do have some. Breaking news, WABC. And this breaking news is an exclusive interview with General Petraeus. He has the latest on Ukraine, General Petraeus. With us today is General Petraeus, former CIA director, four-star general, served our country for 30, 40 years. And uh, how are you, General? Doing good, John. Thanks. Good to be with you. Now, tell us, can you give the American people an update of what the heck is going on? Sure. You know, the truth is, first, that everybody involved keeps losing, inevitably. Uh, the Russians are losing because we are strangling their economy. Uh, the rest of the world is decoupling uh, from various Russian uh, exports, imports. Uh, the financial system is decoupled from SWIFT. Central bank reserves are frozen, uh, and it's going to throw the Russian economy into a recession very quickly uh, and a very substantial proportion. So not to mention the fact that Russian forces uh, in Ukraine have now lost probably more than the U.S. lost in 20 years of war uh, in Iraq. So they're probably at about 5,000 killed, and then several times that uh, in wounded with a big question about whether they can even replace uh, their losses uh, expeditiously. And then, obviously, Ukraine on the receiving end of this unprovoked, premeditated aggression, uh, watching various of their cities, neighborhoods be rubbled. So, again, everyone's losing, uh, and even the rest of the world, because, of course, this brings about higher crude oil prices, There'll be a shortage of wheat in the market. 30% of it comes from Ukraine alone. Um, And then various other commodities, minerals, and so forth uh, will be in much shorter supply. That said, uh, on the battlefield, the Ukrainian forces continue to stymie the Russian forces uh, to demonstrate vastly greater fighting spirit and fighting capability despite the disparity in large weapon systems, uh, air forces, uh, and other equipment uh, issues. But they're basically standing the, uh, holding the Russians at bay uh, around Kiev. That's the main objective of the Russians, is, of course, to capture the capital city, replace the President Zelensky government, which is so inspirational. He himself has been described as Churchillian, I think, which is not hyperbole. Uh, to replace it with a pro-Russian government, 
But it's starting to look, John, I don't know that they're even going to be able to encircle uh, Kiev at this point in time. Uh, the Ukrainians continue to make the Russians pay a very heavy price for their military ineptitude. Most recently, many of the listeners will have seen a video in which Russian tanks were all parked in the open on a huge highway, very close together, completely contrary to the standards for what should be done when halted. And a Ukrainian drone films uh, an attack on those forces, uh, most likely artillery, that just takes out a number of those tanks and even killed the regimental commander. Uh, that is exemplary uh, of what is happening around the country, perhaps a bit more than what is happening everywhere else. Uh, but they're, they're holding them at bay uh, around Kyiv. Kharkiv, uh, the other major city to the southeast of Kyiv, which of course is in the north, uh, you see the uh, Russian forces losing ground. Uh, there have been modest counterattacks there by Ukrainian forces. Um, and it's only in the south uh, that you see some Russian gains that are significant, although those forces that came out of Crimea in the south and then turned west, trying to get to the major port city of Odessa on the Black Sea, a real lifeline for Ukraine, uh, they have run into a very determined defense in a city about halfway to Odessa, uh, where there's a really inspirational mayor and very tough, capable Ukrainian forces. Uh, and then those that have gone east have indeed encircled the other uh, major port, Mariupol, and that is, of course, just sustaining very tough losses. Uh, all the basic services uh, are turned off, no water, no power, uh, no heat, uh, food running right very, very low, and so forth. Although there's still determined defense around the city, but they've cut it off and essentially laid siege to it. And that is probably the single biggest issue, you know, if I were thinking of in the shoes of the chief of the general staff, they were the minister of defense, or indeed the president, they must be racking their brains trying to figure out how do we relieve the pressure on Mariupol? How do we break that siege and get food, water, resupplies, and so forth, humanitarian necessities into that city? And I'm afraid they just probably don't aren't able right now to find the forces. Uh, they don't have enough as it is. No commander ever has. You're always allocating shortages, as we used to put it. And that's the one I'm sure that is eating at that. We've also seen uh, in the past day or two uh, significant Russian strikes in the western part of the country, out in the beef and one of the other western cities. And I suspect that some of this, at least, uh, is to try to deny uh, the use of airfields there. When you and I talked before, I said we were just amazed that the Russians didn't do in the first few hours of the war what we did to Iraq, which was to crater every runway so many times up and down the main uh, runway that they can't use it. You literally can't get an aircraft out of there and, and thereby deny the enemy's air force the ability to even take flight. And they haven't done that yet. Uh, the Ukrainian Air Force, modest though it is, and losses that they have taken, nonetheless continues to fly 
as do limited numbers of drones. And then, of course, finally, just the sheer logistical supply provided by the U.S. and other NATO nations into Ukraine from the West is over 17,000 uh, guided anti-tank missile systems and over 3,000 manned portable air defense systems as well. And those have been dispersed uh, in the areas in Ukraine to which there is still access. So, again, a, I think from the overall perspective, you have to say that the Ukrainians are defying most expectations by their sheer heart. General uh, Petraeus, uh, Bosco has said uh, today on Friday uh, that uh, possibly uh, Putin has said that they're getting closer in a possible solution. I don't know if that's just rhetoric, number one. And they also said, uh, it's been said that he fired a couple of his generals that have been failing. Uh, have you heard anything like that? I, I have. I've heard about the firings. Um, and again, the this feedback that possibly there's some, again, late at the end of the tunnel, possibly there's some negotiated way out. Again, hard to interpret. It could be that he's starting to recognize the enormous damage that his invasion is inflicting on Russia. Uh, and even the Chinese, at a certain point, can't, despite their professions of brotherhood prior to the Olympics, they can't stand by uh, and prove what is going on there, nor can they stand by and not uh, at, at least implement some of these sanctions uh, that have been imposed. Uh, again, they have, have to do that, I think, for, for the, some of their firms to stay active in the global economy. So, General, uh, thank, thank you for... This is hopeful. Yes, that is very helpful. To, it's, look, you, you are a, a great American, and you're filling in the American people what's going in. And I think telling the American people what's going on, you're, you're doing your duty to God and country. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, John. Always a privilege. We'll catch up soon. Thank you. Well, that was a call-in we did with General Petraeus about an hour ago. And... Um, uh, he sounds like he's at the front someplace. I mean, uh, the, all the wind in the background. But um, Well, he was giving us the breaking news, the fact that Russia has lost more troops than we lost in the Iraq war. But I, I think Putin doesn't but care. That we lost in the Iraq war in four years. I know. But Putin doesn't care. What do you think, Judge Weinberg? I think uh, the lesson was learned by Stalin. They'll throw as many bodies and they don't care how many people they lose. They'll fight and they'll fight and they'll fight. That's what the Russians do. They do not care about human life. Not their own, and certainly not their victims. Now, we also, uh, I recorded uh, Gordon Chang already for our Sunday show, and I cut out two minutes as a tease for our Sunday show. Let's play Gordon Chang for our Sunday show, and we'll be right back after that. With us right now is Gordon Chang with an update of what the heck is going on in in Ukraine or the Pacific, and what does he hear? What do you hear, Gordon? Perhaps the most important thing is that uh, there are increasing hints that Russia will use chemical weapons. And President Biden has warned of serious consequences if the Russians do that. But the problem, of course, John, is that the Russians and Vladimir Putin have ignored all of uh, President Biden's warnings, which is the reason why there's a war in the first place. Uh, Biden is starting to take more um, severe actions against 
uh, Russia, including threatening to take away normal trade relations with Russia. And the other thing that we need to watch is that the Russians have disconnected electricity for the cooling ponds at Chernobyl. This is where um, radioactive material is stored. If the water burns off, um, there will be releases of radioactivity. And that gives probably the Russians the idea that if they were to use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine, that they would say, well, the radiation is not from us, it's from the Chernobyl. So there are a number of very disturbing developments at this moment. Putin was saying uh, to people that they're close to a, a possible solution. Is that just normal BS or is that uh, uh, what do you hear? Yeah, I don't think that there is a normal solution. There have been ongoing negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. Um, they have not amounted to anything. There were all of these ceasefires, humanitarian corridors. Um, the Russians have not respected the agreements that they made. Um, you know, a lot of people want to see a negotiated settlement. Um, I don't think that Ukraine can actually agree to one because the Russians would want further um, territory from Kiev. And um, I don't think Zelensky and the Ukrainian people would put up for that. Oh, thank you, uh, Gordon uh, Chang, at, and your Twitter, at Gordon G. Chang, uh, for updates. And we'll talk to you again for Sunday morning. Thank you so much, John. Well, that was Gordon G. Chang. And um, he uh, he's one smart guy. And uh, uh, tune in on Sunday morning on the Cats uh, uh, Roundtable, and uh, we'll get the full interview. and. Uh, it's so many things happening. In, uh, it's disturbing. It's disturbing. That's all I know. So yeah, I'll, I'll tell you how uh, how tremendous that interview was with respect to the tactical nuclear plan of the Russians and what they want to do. They offered an addendum to their defense plan in 2000 saying that they would use measured nuclear power if they ever had to. This document was written by Vladimir Putin. Wow. Putin thinks that if he was to introduce nuclear warfare at a lower level in the Ukraine, that the West would be afraid to respond because that would start World there War are, III. Governor, He's there, wrong. Are, there are nukes that will take out just one square block. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And then he'll blame it on Chernobyl. That's and, what that's and, what. Uh, and that's, what, that's right. his idea. That's, but the, right. what I think we have to so be aware it. of is that he will use this. And I think over the last few weeks before the war started, people started to think that Putin was outsmarting us and that, uh, you know, he's just making all this money off of it. The, all I can say about Putin is what the, um, you know, what the frog said about the snake after he gave him a ride across the ocean. And then when they got to the other side, the snake bit him. He's a snake. That's all you have to know. No, uh, Governor Patterson, I think you're right. Now, all four of us, Judge Weinberg, Governor Patterson, and uh, Lydia Serrani and myself were at the Police Athletic League luncheon the other day uh, with uh, uh, the governor, Governor Kathy Hochul, and she spoke uh, uh, and she addressed a couple of hundred people. Uh, governor, what was you? You were the chair. You were an ex-governor, and and you were the chair of the uh, Democratic Party in uh, New York State. Give us your uh, reaction. And there's some new polls out. Tell us about it. Well, I'm a big <clears throat> fan of Governor Hochul, and I think she's done an excellent job. Up until the convention, and I'd say the last month, when the issues of merit, the issues that people are talking about, 
she has just really not said and says she's going to handle this in her budget. And I think that the public feeling that equivocation is now looking around. And in a poll that uh, came out today, Governor Cuomo trails in a one-on-one race, Governor Hochul, 37 to 34. Now, that's a dead heat. And so uh, uh, Governor Cuomo, who has the advantage right now that he doesn't have to say anything. All he has to do is to try to vindicate himself, which he has a right to do. But it, I feel that there's going to have to be a new dimension to the Hochul strategy or she is just not going to be considered serious because she doesn't appear to be taking one side or the other. Judge Weinberg, what did you think? I think uh, if, if I had been advising her, I would have said she should have been stronger on the law and order, public safety. The message, that she, and I agree with the governor, that the message that she's going to take care of as part of the budget without any specifics is, is not helpful. People need to know that you're going to have real law enforcement on the subways, on the streets, and that this is serious business, and she backs Mayor Adams. And that didn't come across in the speech. I think she underestimates just how savvy New Yorkers are. And I felt like she was kind of giving us a lot of Democratic talking points. We know what the talk. We don't need to hear about the iron pipeline and the border and this and that. We like you're saying, Judge Weinberg, and like what you're saying, Governor Patterson, we want real solutions to the real problems. Right now, homelessness is plaguing our city. Drugs are on the city. We just can't take it anymore. I I didn't I I didn't feel that passion. She was she was watching that she doesn't say anything. Bad, but you can't tiptoe uh, through the tulips. The, uh, well, you, you like my new statement. I, huh? I, it's not new. It's it needs to be said, and that's why you know I was like when you introduced She's her. Still I said, worried that about sounds the like a leader culture. And yeah, you know how I feel and, about and John, the left wing culture. That's exactly the problem. And let me just point something out. I really haven't heard anybody say this before. Eric Adams has been talking about these issues for the last four months. I haven't heard one left-leaning elected official counteract it or why, call him any names or governor, do That's why he won the Democratic nomination. Well, when he shifted and went after crime, when the other candidates stood still and, and kept pretending that it wasn't there, that's how he won. Well, that's right. And I'll tell you, I said it right there. I said we have thirty or 40,000 PAL kids, and whether you're in Harlem or Bedford-Stuyvesant, those kids deserve to be safe. And right now, and the other thing I said when I was introducing her, we have eight million five hundred thousand New Yorkers. Who do we and who do we care about? The eight million five hundred thousand New Yorkers or the three thousand violent criminals? That's it. It's the facts are right there. You kept you, you kept it very simple. Instead, I feel like she's doing the Democratic talking points, talking well, about the budget and this and the yeah. pipeline. You know, and, come you know, on, it has to be said. If, if I were invite, a political advisor to the governor, I'd say I am joining with Mayor Adams and I'm going to demand that the legislative leaders sit down with me and look at the legislation that we need to get passed to clean up this crisis. Let's ta- let's take a break and we'll talk more later on. We'll take a break and we're going to come back with Larry Kudlow. A common sense recap of the day's biggest stories. It's John Katsimatidis and Cats at Night on 77 WABC. Welcome back to the John Katsimatidis Cats at Night show. Coming up, we still have a lot of great guests. We will be speaking with the NYPD Commissioner Keyshawn Sewell. She's going to be telling us how they plan on getting crime down and taking back our city. But we also have another special guest on the line. We have with us today is Larry Kudlow and... Uh, 
Larry is supposed to tell us what, what, what the heck is going on. I mean, you have a roller coaster stock market. The economy seems good. I'd rather hear what you have to say. Well, thank you, John. Thank you, Lydia. Uh, look, um, among the big news items this week was the huge increase of inflation, nearly 8% uh, for the last 12 months in February, which had really no impact from the Putin invasion. But the problem here is that the President Biden continues to blame inflation on Putin. And Putin is not the cause of inflation because inflation has been rising for over a year. And it's been rising because of, number one, too much deficit spending by the federal government. And they've just done another one and a half trillion dollar bill, which is unpaid for. Number two, the Federal Reserve keeps printing money and jamming new cash into the economy. And number three, probably most important right now, is that the Biden administration, uh, like a regulatory uh, a regulatory behemoth, a regulatory octopus, is using all of its federal agencies to stop the production and pipelining of fossil fuels, oil and gas. So we have an inadequate supply. We're a couple million barrels a day below where we were at the peak in late 2019, early 2020. And that's too bad because we need all the oil and gas we can get. If we put more on the market, the prices would fall. If we completed the XL pipeline, which could be done in one year, not two years, as Biden said today, if we stop the deficit spending, if we stop the money printing, we could conquer inflation and we'd have more reasonable prices of gasoline at the pump. But you know what? The president has to acknowledge that these issues exist, and he's in complete denial about it so far. And if you don't own the problem, you're not going to solve the problem. And therefore, I'm very concerned, John, that this inflationary outburst and the shortage of uh, fossil fuels, oil and gas and so forth, it's not going to have a happy ending for Joe Biden's Washington, but maybe more importantly, it's not going to have a happy ending for average working folks around the country. This will lead to a inflationary recession. I don't buy into the soft landing arguments, and I'm quite concerned. I know the cavalry's on the way, and I know the Republicans are going to do very well in November. The latest Wall Street Journal poll out this afternoon shows a big GOP lead. Uh, over the Democrats in the midterms. But between now and then, we got issues. And I'm very concerned that this will not have a happy ending. Larry, I had the Canadian minister and his whole staff in, in, the, in the office uh, today. And uh, we're going to interview him later on, me and Lydia. Mm-hmm. And basically what he said to me is Canada and Alberta, which is the, the main place where the crude oil is, has 170 billion, billion uh, barrels of oil. We know that Alaska has 70 billion uh, uh, barrels of oil. That's not counting the Arctic Ocean. That's not counting the Arctic Ocean. Why are we making the, the foreign 
enemies, rich. Why are we making OPEC and Saudi Arabia zillionaires again when we have all the oil we can uh, use? I mean, what, what say you, Larry? Well, you know, it's, those are all the right questions. I, I'll relate an anecdote. I had Rick Perry, former energy secretary, Texas governor, on the show uh, last night or the night before. And he said, instead of sending American diplomats to Iran or Venezuela to negotiate for oil, we should have a special envoy to Midland, Texas, where they they might be able to make a peace treaty with the oil and gas industry. And, John, I loved what you told me last night at dinner, the idea of North American energy independence, Canada, United States, and Mexico. I mentioned it on my show today because I think that's exactly right. You've got three allies with, you know, as you say, billions and billions, hundreds of billions of barrels of oil, God knows how much natural gas, and that could be used into LNG exports. Energy independence for North America, because you know what we have? We have two civilized countries. We have Canada, we have the United States, and we do have Mexico, too, with nice people. And you know what happens? We have uh, civilized people, and we're tiptoeing through the tulips, and we're fighting dictators. We're fighting yeah. the Chinese dictators. Yeah. We're fighting the Russians dictators. You know what it's going to be? It'll be the end of the Roman Empire like it was. Larry, well, Larry Kudlow, just, I have a quick question because the president confused me. I was listening. I know he's confused a lot, but he confused me even further. Again, he reiterated saying that it has nothing to do with oil and drilling and that the oil companies, they have plenty of permits and they're just not drilling. The, and this is price gouging. What is the reality? Because I feel like there's a lot of misinformation out there. Yeah, well, I think the president is spreading misinformation. Correct. And I think he's, frankly, doing it deliberately because he's dominated by these, you know, radical climate change people. Look, um, there are leases, okay, but leases are leases. What really matters, whether you're on federal lands or private lands. I mean, most of the drilling is on private lands, not federal lands. But what's happened is this regulatory uh, octopus, FERC, Interior Department, Energy Department, EPA, lately the SEC and the Federal Reserve, they are stopping. They will not grant permits based on the Endangered Species Act based on the Clean Water Act, based on um, NEPA permitting. They are denying permits to either drill or to pipeline. And they're using some, frankly, crazy metrics to deny it, particularly anything on environmental grounds. They're using this idea of the social cost of carbon, which is a made-up metric. It is not a universally agreed upon metric. And they're trying to say, they're trying to estimate, if you build a pipeline, Lydia, what will the upstream impact be? What would the downstream impact be? What will the global impact be? What's happened over the last three centuries? Okay, three centuries. As our friend used to say, Larry, they're full of crap. Uh, (laughs) Larry. Uh, they're full of crap. That, they're, <laughs> Thank you. They're, they're using that as an excuse to prevent drilling and pipelining. 
It's a very important point, which Mr. Biden will not understand, you know, will not agree to, will not acknowledge. They're stopping it. So you may have a lease. You might even have a permit to drill, but they will interfere and block it under these crazy environmental metrics. And uh, this is new. We face this in the Trump administration, and we frankly dismiss them because they're not universally acknowledged metrics. And they're, you know, they're, 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 they're pulling out stuff that doesn't exist. Larry Cudlow, anyway, we're out of time. I want to thank you for calling in. And I, I will be listening to your show on WABC Radio uh, tomorrow on Saturday, every Saturday between 10 and 1. And you are great during that period of time. And He's great always. Great always. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Thank Thanks, you kids. so much and have a good flight. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, are we taking the commissioner? Or are we going to a break? We got a break. We got to take a break, break and we'll come back with the commissioner. John Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis Cats at Night Show. We got a full studio tonight. We've got Governor David Patterson, Judge Weinberg, of course, John Katzmatidis, myself, Lydia Serrani, on the line with us right now. We have NYPD Commissioner Keyshawn Sewell. And Commissioner, it is such an honor to interview you, have you on this show. You are such a pioneer, such a, how do you say, breaking the glass ceiling. And it's, it's, an, it's an honor. It's great to have you on the show. The honor is mine. Thank you so much. Good evening, everyone. So tell us, crime here in New York City, number one topic. I know you're working together with Mayor Adams. How are you going to lower crime here? Well, you know, it took a lot to get us here. The pandemic was a factor, and we're actually climbing out of that, as everybody knows, and we're glad to see it. The courts were terribly affected by that as well. Um, they were arraigning people. We were arresting, but uh, they had trouble during COVID getting grand juries to sit and getting regular juries to sit for trials, and they're still kind of struggling with that. We made actually 4,500 gun arrests last year, but over 80% of those suspects with open gun cases are still out walking around right now, and only 100 of those cases went to trial or a plea. The court system needs to come back. I, uh, Commissioner John Katzmatidis, I agree with you, and we got a uh, Supreme Court just uh, judge here uh, uh, that that sat through many of those. And um, uh, when we give out those uh, tickets, desk appearance tickets, those desk appearance tickets, nobody ever comes back. That that is true at times, and uh, when there are no consequences, behavior doesn't change. And Commissioner Sewell, I, I know the cops, they're doing all they can. You guys are making a record number of arrests, specifically when it comes to guns. How frustrating is it for you when I just read this article in the Post about this uh, career criminal who was Eugene Clark, who was actually indicted by a grand jury on murder, and he was freed without bail by a Manhattan judge. I can only imagine this, this is incredibly frustrating for New Yorkers as well as for police officers. You know, the most dangerous thing our officers do is to go after somebody with a gun. They do it every single day. And when someone does get out, it is very frustrating, as you described uh, about the case today. Uh, But we're making the largest number of arrests over the last two years, and we've seen it in a quarter of a century. We certainly need uh, the judges to be able to remand people when necessary. But our officers, they are answering the calls. They're helping people. They're engaging the public in their homes, in the streets, and on the transit system. As you probably know I've been at their bedsides in emergency rooms because of the tragedies we've had over the past several weeks across the city. I greet them on patrol. 
I know our cops are engaged. Don't let anyone tell you that because morale or criticism, criticism excuse me, or bad laws, my cops are mailing it in because they're not. They are not phoning it in at all. They are out there helping New Yorkers every single day and night. Commissioner, well, this Governor is Governor Patterson. Go ahead. Uh, this is David Patterson. I grew up in Long Island. I went to a police dinner in Long Island uh, back in October. This is long before you were uh, uh, installed as police commissioner here in New York, and all the uh, police officials out there were raving about you. So good luck. And I want to ask you this question. Um, how long do you think a commissioner or mayor should have before you can decide whether or not their crime-fighting tools are working? So, for instance, you all took office in January. I read articles, but the end of January, well, we haven't seen a change in crime. Well, you couldn't. It's far more serious an issue than to write those sort of uh, really cursory headlines. I wholeheartedly agree a lot. It took us a lot to get here, but we certainly have initiatives in place to try to turn it around. We are seeing some results. We have a a number of arrests that we are uh, taking in the subways and on the streets. So we certainly hope to have things turned around fairly quickly, but we do have to recognize the fact that it took us a while to get here. But we are steadfast focused on making it safer. We're putting new initiatives in place every single day, and we certainly hope to see the results of that. Uh, We know we will see the results of that as well. Uh, I've talked to uh, I was with Governor Hochul yesterday and with uh, uh, Attorney General Tish James the day before, and uh, we talked about that uh, common sense Democrats and common sense Republicans have to talk to uh, the Assembly and the State Senate and put their foot down and say enough is enough. We got to keep eight and a half million New Yorkers safe versus three thousand violent criminals. I mean, if we have 3,000 violent criminals or 4,000, whatever the number is, and I'm talking about, we used to have three strikes and you're out. And I, I, I said to Tish, uh, James, and I said to, well, well, what's the new rule? 14 strikes and you're out? 20 <laughs> strikes and you're out? I said, at what point do we take them off the streets and, and, and keep eight and a half million New Yorkers safe? We, you know, the criminal justice reform laws that took effect in 2020, uh, I think that is definitely part of the thinking that needs to change. We can keep most of the important elements of the reform, but there are absolutely some things that need to be adjusted. And Commissioner, it's, and, uh, yeah. Commissioner, it's Judge Richard Warnberg. I want to commend you for your leadership on that issue. I've been saying on this program, and John Casamitidis has been saying on this program for a long time, you have to take a real hard look at that legislation. It has to be changed. You have to deal with the problem of giving judges discretion to hold people in based on dangerousness. That's the first change. And, and the ability yeah. to look back on their records. Recidiv- that's exactly have, right. If they have 14 uh, indictments for violent crimes. Recidivism. You know, at, Recidivism, at what, point, at what point, point do you put them away? The, the point is that the law has to be amended so that you deal with the problem of recidivism. And Governor Patterson and I have had this conversation about that. That has to be an amendment to the bill when you have the problem Commissioner of Commissioner Sewell, what do you think needs to be changed with the bail reform bill? There are entire categories of serious crimes that we can no longer make an arrest for. Or we can only issue a summons. We have used discretion in the past. Now we don't even have that. There are entire categories of crime we can make an arrest. But as you said, the judges are legally prohibited from ever setting bail. Even if the same burglar or car thief commits the same crime every day and ends up in front of the same judge, they used to have that discretion. And in many cases, they don't have that anymore. Even when bail is set, the judge is required by law to set a bail amount that the defendant can afford, which means more violent criminals are getting out on bail that they can also walk away from. And the now, the, least, be, the he, least drastic uh, means, too. They have to do a hearing to determine what's the least drastic. So if they can uh, let them uh, out 
with a, an ankle bracelet. You're right, you're right. And do. that's going to take up a lot of time, which the commissioner was saying earlier was the reason that they couldn't get cases processed because they didn't have enough people there. And now you've got these added hearings that are just going to obfuscate the process. Commissioner Sewell, but, but I know I you want have, to be fair, yes. but I want to be fair because bail should be fair. I don't exactly. mean to insinuate no, that it should agree. not be fair. But all, had, okay, just we making sure agree. we're clear on that. It did need to be reformed. But after 14 violent indictments, 44, 44, Russ. And- well, Commissioner, thank you for coming on. And uh, we support you. We support uh, Mayor Adams in his effort. And we're standing behind you and, and want to put all common sense New Yorkers, whether uh, of color or white or blue or green, the, the, to say enough is enough. We want New York to be safe. Thank you so much. Commissioner, so the last thing you want to say to New Yorkers out there that are worried and they want to move out of here about, you know, because they're worried about the crime. Mayor Adams and I are laser focused on turning the tide in this city. We have the tools to do it. We have the people to do it. We have the drive to do it. And we will get it done. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you so much. And uh, uh, we'll see you soon. We'll see you at the Powell lunch, the New York Police Athletic Ah. League lunch on Tuesday. And and I look forward to saying hi. As do I. I'll see you soon. Thank you all for your time. Bye-bye. Uh, that was a terrific interview. She's, she's, a, she's a woman she's who a understands lady. the issues. And can, we support, can she run for governor? We support, we support <laughs> her 100%, and we support Eric Adams 100%. She makes and sense. Listen to me. Uh, but but these people in the state Senate, in the state uh, assembly, they're told, Mayor Adams, they told them to pound sand. Right. And- I mean, I, you know what we're going to tell them this November, Governor? Well, I'm going to tell them to pound sand, the people that uh, don't want law and order in our streets. I mean, how many more people? And, you know, they keep talking about the criminals. They don't want to fill up the justice system in the jails with black and brown people. Well, what about the hospitals with the black and brown people? Ninety percent of the victims of these same criminals over and over are people of color. They deserve to be safe, too. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to have the minister from uh, of finance. Canada of from- finance and uh very interesting discussion with our, our sister country, Canada. And they're frustrated, too. You're commuting home with Cats at Night. Now, here's John Katsimatidis on 77 WABC. In studio with us now is Travis Taves. He is the Minister of Finance for the province of Alberta, Canada, which produces the majority of oil production in Canada. Welcome to the studio. Welcome to WABC. It's great to be here. Now, I understand, by the way, Lydia, uh, Canada has 170 billion barrels of reserves. You know, Alaska has 70 billion in reserves. And that doesn't count the Arctic Ocean. So that is a lot of oil. That's 100 years worth of oil. We have the potential for a significant energy security, complete energy security within North America. That way, what I suggested uh, to Washington last week, that Mexico, United States, and Canada should have a a North Atlantic uh, Energy uh, Commission, or whatever we want to call it, agreement, agency, to make sure that North America is self-sufficient and not dependent on foreign uh, oil. John, I couldn't agree more. And when we take a look at the events of certain of the last three weeks, three or four weeks, but even beyond that, I would suggest the events that were already shaping up last fall, ultimately um, events shaping up that were resulting in 
what I would call as a mini, uh, mini energy crisis in Europe and Asia. A crisis I would suggest brought on by hasty energy divestment in the most responsibly produced energy industries in the world, and that is in Canada and the United States. Understood. Right. Canada is our closest ally. You're our neighbor. So I'm sure there, we've had this kind of synchronous what, type of relationship for a very what I said. What I said to the time. minister, when I say the word America, right. I mean Canada and the United States because we're in the same boat. That's right. John, I, I, I just want to add to that. You know, I mean, Canada and the United States uh, are the largest trading partners by far and away of any two countries in the world. But it's much more than that. We actually don't just trade, we create things together. We have the longest undefended border of any two countries in the world, and it even goes deeper than that. You know, with with north-south migration over the years, I think of the province of Alberta, settled initially and largely, certainly when European settlement came in, it came in from the U.S., so much of it. We had cattle ranchers that moved their herds up into Alberta and made home. Since then, we've had families move back and forth, marriages across the border, there's two na- there, there are not two nations in the world that are more connected than Canada and the U.S. I couldn't agree more. When you saw, as you, as you drove through Manhattan, did you see some of the gas prices? Were you, were you surprised? I mean, we're over five bucks a gallon here in New York City. I'm, I'm shocked at gas prices right across North America. What do you think we should be doing? Uh, you know, I urge, I said we should be, have a, a North America treaty on, on energy. What else can Americans do? To tell their government, to tell their congressmen, their senators, and tell them, you know, it's ridiculous what's going on. We're giving money to overseas instead of uh, we're making an America, the Americas poor, including Canada, and, and making the overseas uh, enemies uh, rich. John, I talked about the issue and challenge of, and the unintended consequences of hasty energy divestment. You know, our, our problem has been we've been so focused on emissions reduction. And, and, you know, emissions reduction is important. And, and both of our industries, both in Canada and the U.S., we're making great headway at reducing emissions in our energy production. And that's important. And we'll continue, continue to reduce emissions. But what we cannot take our eye off the ball, and that is on energy security. Ultimately, we need to ensure that it, there is an environment where investment can land and thrive in the American and Canadian energy industries. And, John, an issue we've had is we've simply not had enough pipeline capacity to, to actually move our energy once we produce it into, into the marketplace, whether it's to Tidewater or whether it's to the Gulf Coast or whether it's down here to the Midwestern Eastern Seaboard. And so I have to say, as a Canadian... I was incredibly disappointed when President Biden canceled the permit on KXL. That was a pipeline that would have delivered over 850,000 barrels of responsibly, ethically produced crude per day. It could have completely offset imports from Russia. But instead, now we're behind the eight ball. Again, we're speaking with Travis Taves. He's the Minister of Finance for the province of Alberta, Canada, which is a major oil producer in Canada. And talk to me also about the stringent standards regarding oil production and drilling that we have here in North America that they don't have all over the world. We, we have the most responsible industry in the world. You know, in, I can certainly say in Canada, in our oil sands production, for instance, we've seen a, a major effort on reducing emissions. Over the last 15 years, uh, oil sands producers have reduced emissions by over 20%, and they're expecting by 2030 to reduce the emissions intensity on every barrel produced by another 30%. 
We have by far and away the most responsible energy producers in the world. I know that goes on both sides of the border. And by not fully developing in a responsible way these resources, effectively it pushes production to nations such as Venezuela, the Middle East, and Russia. That funding, that wealth, is now uh, effectively fueling aggression, Russian aggression against the people of Ukraine, and that's tragic. Minister Taves, to hear the White House say, you know what, the Keystone Pipeline has nothing to do with what we're, the energy crisis we're suffering right now. What goes through your mind? Well, well here's the reality. Uh, because of, I would suggest, um, l- the leftist activists, the, the, the green activists' uh, efforts over the last 10 years in Canada, we simply don't have the pipeline construction, uh, the pipeline volume and capacity needed to, to fully provide um, our neighbors to the south of uh, uh, America with the energy security that they need. What we need to do right now, we need to double down. We need to focus on building required uh, and, and necessary pipeline capacity. So, again, we can return this continent to energy security. Now, we run between the United States and Canada. We're both civilized. But we're doing business. The rest of the world, they're dictators. They're not civilized. So if we try to survive in a civilized world and tiptoe through the tulips, as they used to say, then, you know, I'm afraid for our world. That's right. Yeah, absolutely, John. You know, the way I characterize it, uh, we in, uh, you know, the energy industry in in Western Canada, and I would suggest in the U.S. as well, has both an opportunity, but, but I would suggest a responsibility at this point in time to ensure, firstly, that we have energy security within North America, but secondly, to ensure that our geopolitical allies globally have a trusted, secure energy source, an energy source that can't be manipulated uh, by the likes of, of Vladimir Putin. It should be a, a, a joint effort on oil, a joint effort on the, on the electric grid, because we're going to have a problem with that someday. Uh, and a joint effort on all energy. So North America, we got to take care of ourselves. You know, we have a we have a great opportunity right now. Uh, North America is blessed with an abundant uh, abundance of natural gas. And right now, you know, the best thing we could do for emissions reduction globally, and that is to get more responsibly produced LNG over to Asia and Europe. It would displace coal-fired electricity generation. That would be the best thing we could do for the environment. And, and, John, moreover, it would uh, uh, re- reduce the dependency of our friends and allies in Western Europe, again, on dictators' oil and energy, uh, such as Vladimir Putin's. You know, uh, last fall, we really, we really saw a witness observed an energy crisis shaping up. This energy crisis was driving natural gas prices up in Europe and Asia. It was resulting in those that live in the margin, margins, the most vulnerable paying a huge price in increased transportation and heating costs, but it was worse than that. Because of the shortage, fertilizer production was being shut off. That's going to result in lower agriculture production globally. Who will that affect? It'll affect the most vulnerable, the folks that live on the margins. Moreover, the shortage of natural gas was actually resulting in gas-to-coal conversions again in electricity generation. What was that doing? Pushing emissions up. John... Hasty energy divestment has unintended consequences that are tragic. Well, we, what's even more tragic is we agreed to go with the Paris Accord so-so. Uh, and for us, we have to cooperate by tomorrow morning. For China, 
they don't have to cooperate for another 20 years or something like that. Or ever. Yeah, that that's that's the sad reality. And you know, when, when I think of uh, when I think when I think of uh, you know the, the climate negotiations in Glasgow, uh, you know, and, and we think of again the unintended consequences of hasty energy divestment on not ensuring that we have energy security. It's not going to affect the lifestyle of all of those folks who flew to Glasgow. It's going to affect all the people on the margins, all the Americans, Canadians, and 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 folks globally. Who, who live in the margins. Well, Minister, thank you so much for coming to uh, New York and meeting with us and and uh, talking about it, because if Canada and the United States, uh, along with the help of Mexico, we could be independent in North America, let's continue to work on this. I hope all our listeners are telling their congresspeople and telling their senators and telling their ministers in Canada God bless, uh, God bless you, and God bless America, which includes Canada and the United States. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. Wow, that was a, that was a good interview, guys. I mean, uh, if we we have to work together with North America because you know we are we're civilized people, and you know what you have uh, between Putin and uh, China, you don't have civilized people; they're killers. Right. And Biden wants to buy oil from Venezuela and Iran. What kind of message is I, that? I, don't, I mean, Venezuela is now a subsidiary of Russia. What is going on here? And we want to make the Ayatollahs rich. And wants to give, it wants to give, uh, was it Iran back their money, and to use that Iran is going to use that money for more terrorism. So, Governor Patterson, uh, back to what we were talking about with Cuomo. Does he run or doesn't he run? I think he can run if he wants to because he's close enough in the polls and he has the money. And so, so what does he get, have to do now? Just get signatures? Yes. Uh, he'd get the signatures and get himself on the ballot. He can do that in five days. Spitzer did it in 2013. Why do signatures does he need? I don't remember, but it's a very... It's, it's, not, a, it's not a big project. It's, it's not a big project. Not a so big why project. is he doing but, it? He wants to get finally... He, he wants, wants a fourth to, term. He, he wants to don't vindicate. forget what he said. His father never made the fourth term, and he wanted to outdo his father. And and that would that would certainly outdo it because and, he would be and, running as and a to private citizen too. And to go after all Judge, the people that kicked him to the curb. Oh my God, <laughs> oh, that, Judge Weinberg, don't, don't mess, Governor oh. Patterson, Lydia Serrani, John Katzenberg is here. Uh, TGIF, thank God it's Friday, and and. <laughs> I resemble that remark. <laughs> God bless America. God bless Canada, United States. And let's God bless the people of the Ukraine. And have a great weekend. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes. Ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.